Other People's Flowers is a podcast for stories, poetry, and essays. Thank you for listening. This week's work comes from Pamela Scott. Pamela Scott lives in Glasgow, UK. Her work has appeared in various magazines, including Brilliant Flash Fiction, Peking Cat Poetry, The Cannon's Mouth, Sarasvati, The Dawn Treader, and Toasted Cheese Literary Magazine. She is also featured in anthologies published by Collections of Poetry and Prose and Indigo Dreams Press. She is working on her first novel. The Stations of Grief Station 1. Death It's still early, not even midnight when we leave the club. It's dark out, but you'd never know it for the bright light cast by the streetlights dotted at intervals along the edge of the pavement. The streets are packed with clubbers heading home after a night on the tiles. We walk down the street towards the bus stop, hand in hand. Julie tells me some inane joke a mutual friend once told her when they were both drunk and makes me laugh. I lift her hand to my mouth and gently kiss the back of her fingers. We look at each other, shining with love. It all happens so fast. We both step up the curb to cross to the bus stop on the other side. I look up and down both sides of the street, but the road's empty. She steps off the curb first, and I let go of her hand. The speeding car comes out of nowhere and ploughs towards her. I hear screaming voices, including my own. She looks up the street, and for a second she becomes a rabbit, her pale face and big blue eyes caught in the headlights. The car's going too fast to stop. The driver tries to swerve, but hits her side on, tossing her into the air like a broken ragdoll. She screams once and falls silent as she bounces off the bonnet of the car and rolls onto the road. The driver stays inside the car. I glance at him once, at his huge, white, shocked face and his bloodshot eyes. I kneel beside her in the gutter where her blood's pooling. She looks up at me. The pain in her face is like a knife driving deep into your gut. Her bloodshot, shocked eyes are filled with blood. Blood leaks from everywhere. She tries to speak, but her face twists in pain. She coughs once and sprays my face with hot, stinking blood. I can hear voices shouting for an ambulance and phones dialing. Someone yells, don't let him get away, and I hear the sound of a fist connecting. I cradle her twitching form in my arms, ignoring the protests of the strangers around me. Her skin feels icy and cold, and I know she's fading fast. There's no life in her, no breath in her throat and lungs. She closes her eyes, and I feel her slip away as the ambulance screeches through the night. Station 2. Funeral Months pass before we can bury Julie. The investigation into the hit-and-run takes forever to get sorted. Once the driver realised how serious things were, he made a run for it. Several people tried to stop him from getting into his car, but he fought them. He sped off into the night as she lay dying in the gutter. The police arrested him almost a week later. I was on autopilot from the moment I saw the car hit her. I find myself doing things at a subconscious level without really thinking about it. I shuffle about a poor imitation of my life like a zombie. It hurts to think, so I just sort of let things happen. My mother injects herself back into my life and takes command. I'm too lost, too broken to resist. I'm her willing puppet. Mother organises her funeral with the same gusto she uses to organise weddings and dinner parties. 
and her month luncheons with the ladies. She hires a funeral planner. A goddamn funeral planner. How can such a person exist? Imagine making a living from such a thing. Mother arranges for the service to take place at her church. This is no mean feat, considering Julie had never been a member and had always been open about being an atheist. Mother goes to church every week like a good Christian and is a member of the choir and the women's society and various other things. She must have pulled a lot of strings. She even arranges to bury Julie in the family plot. I'm so shocked when she tells me. All the strength goes out from my legs. I need to sit down before I fall down. Julie's death changed something in her. She cut all ties years ago when I told her I'm gay. She met you once and tore strips off you with her poisoned tongue. She took every opportunity to make snide remarks and nasty comments. What happened to change her cold, bitter heart? The service goes off without a hitch. Our minister gives a nice little speech about the tragic loss of someone he's never met and knows nothing about. He tells a pack of lies about what a good Christian Julie was and how strong her faith had been. He tells a pack of lies about her, fed to him by my mother. She smiles sweetly at me the whole time, knowing I'll never say a word and cause a scene at her funeral. I'm forced to keep my mouth shut. Mother invites everyone back to her house for some light refreshments. She hires one of the most expensive catering companies around to lay on a spread. Her kitchen is packed with tables covered in delicious food and drink, a feast for strangers to gorge on. I don't see a single face I recognise when Mother makes me join everyone in the kitchen and have something to eat. I gave Mother a list of our friends I wanted at the funeral and their contact information and she's conveniently forgotten to include anyone. The only people I can see are her friends from various groups and societies, people who hate me for being gay as much as I hate them for being small-minded and prejudiced. Mother's house is packed with Bible-bashing well-wishers. Dozens of strangers stamp all over my broken heart, spouting nonsense about God's will and reincarnation. I could have killed Mother for putting me in this position, and I'm furious with myself for letting her. She preyed on the fact I'm distraught and emotional. In different circumstances, I'd never have let her through the front door. Mother and her friends fuss over me all day. They don't leave me alone for two seconds, like they're afraid I'd do something crazy, like become emotional and hurt myself. They all try in vain to make me feel better and offer some comfort. I'll give them that. Their concern feels like dozens of knives being stabbed into my heart. I feel a thousand stabs of pain. They all want me to feel better, and I feel so guilty because I don't and never will. Station 3. Acknowledgement. Little bombs start to blow up in my face every day. The first bomb happens the day after her funeral when I'm making breakfast. I'm still on autopilot mode, my hands opening cupboards and drawers and pouring things and spreading things methodically. I notice a sheet of paper held to the fridge by a cute little love heart shaped magnet. I start to snap out of the trance I've been in for weeks. I take the sheet of paper from the fridge and read it. It's one of her lover letters forgotten and left lying in wait for you. My eyes fill with tears as I hear her voice in my head. I start to find love letters from her all over the house, each one a little bomb that sends slivers of shrapnel deep into my heart. I decide to do some housework after days of listening to my mother go on and on about dust and wallowing and self-pity. I'm hoovering her side of the bed when the hoover bumps against something. I get down on my knees and rummage around under the bed and my hands press something hard. I pull the object out, and the second bomb goes off. It's a copy of the book she was reading, The Crimson Petal and the White, by Michelle Faber. 
Her bookmark is tucked somewhere around the middle. Something breaks inside me. I start to notice her smell all over the house. The light perfume she wore wafts around the bedroom and living room. I smell her sweat in the bathroom, kitchen and all over the house. The smell is so strong, sometimes I swear she's right there, beside me or in front of me. All I need to do is reach out and touch her. Every time I smell her, another bomb mains what's left of my heart. I'm heading into town one day to do some shopping. I open the front door and notice that it's pouring down. I open the hall cupboard to grab a pair of boots when I notice a few drops of dried mud tucked into the far corner. She used to go walking all the time. She's the only person I know who actually liked a walking holiday. Her favourite walking boots are tucked into the corner, still caked with dry mud from her last hike. I stumble backwards as my legs give out. Another bomb tears through my heart. I'm standing at the bathroom sink one day, washing my face and hands, when I notice something stuck in the plug hole, clogging it. I use a toothbrush to poke around in the drain. A bundle of hairs come loose and spill out into the sink. My breath catches in the back of my throat. The hair belongs to her. She's the only person in my life who had bright yellow hair. I lift up the wet, matted bundle of hair and hold it up to my nose. The smell of her is so real that I turn around, half expecting to see her standing behind me, grinning. Another bomb goes off and brings me to my knees. She used the spare red room as an office. She designed websites and worked from home. I haven't set foot in her office since days before the car took her light from the world. The silence in the room is stifling and I throw open the windows. The air seems heavier than the rest of the house somehow. I take a quick look around and notice a mug perched on top of the desk and instinctively reach for it. It's her favourite, with the words, I'm having my period and can therefore legally kill you, printed on the side. There's a red lipstick smudge on one side. I start to smile and burst into tears instead. Another bomb explodes. I'm so lost without her. My days are filled with awful gaps with nothing to fill them. Just the memory of her like a knife driving deeper and deeper into my heart. I've got too much time on my hands to think and dwell and grieve and break into smaller pieces. It comes to you suddenly out of nowhere that she's dead and is never coming back. She isn't on a week-long hiking trip or a conference. She's buried six feet under, nothing but worm food. I lie on the floor, curl myself into a little ball and weep until there's nothing left inside me. Station 4. Remembrance. 1. Six years before. It's a beautiful summer day, the first time I see her. I'm still at university, studying for an English degree. I'm looking forward to weeks of summer vacation. The weather's been hot and humid for weeks, and I'm determined to enjoy every second. I decide to take my dog, Foxy, for a walk in a park not far from the student dorms. I dress for summer, denim shorts, purple plimsolls, and a tight little pink t-shirt with Little Miss Sunshine printed on the front. I love the feel of the hot sun on my skin and eyes. I bask in the sunshine as I make my way down the street and into the park. Foxy's excited to be out and trots along, giving little barks of happiness. The park's unusually quiet for a hot, cloudless day at the height of summer. I notice a few people walking about and some children. I notice someone biking towards me along a path in the distance. I barely give the biker a thought and let Foxy off her lead. She yelps in delight and runs off. I follow Foxy across the park. I notice she's bounding straight towards the biker. I move closer and notice the biker is a woman, a beautiful woman with silver blonde hair. Foxy leaps and knocks the woman off her bike. I race towards them, concerned she might have hurt herself. 
the woman's lying on her bum in the dry grass. Her bike is in a heap next to her. She looks winded. Foxy runs towards her, tail wagging, and starts to lick her face. The woman starts laughing. She looks up at me, and our eyes meet. She grins at me, and both of us can't stop laughing. She pats Foxy's head and scratches under her chin. Foxy thumps her tail on the grass. She's a lovely dog. What's her name? She says. Foxy. The name suits. I like to think so. I help her to her feet. She offers me her small, delicate hand. My name's Julie. I shake her hand. Lovely to meet you. I'm Marion. I help her pick her bike up. Foxy crawls towards her across the grass on her stomach and makes that low, whining noise I know means she wants some attention. Julie scratches her ears and Foxy rolls over onto her back. Julie scratches her stomach and Foxy thumps her leg on the ground. Dinner? I ask. Dinner. I'd like to take you to dinner tonight to apologise for Foxy's rude behaviour. She laughs. I'd like that. How about a picnic in this park tonight? That sounds lovely. I'll meet you at this exact spot at midnight. She laughs. I'll be here. I start to walk away. Foxy jumps up and runs after me. I put her lead back on and start to walk back the way I came. I turn back to look at Julie, who's still there, watching me. You better be here, I say. She laughs. You can count on it. I leave the park with a grin on my face and take Foxy home. I go to the little deli on the corner later that night and buy enough food for a small picnic. I get all dressed up and head to the park just before midnight. She's waiting for me in the exact spot where Foxy knocked her off her bike. She's wearing a beautiful pale blue dress that makes her shine in the moonlight. So you made it, I say. I wouldn't have missed this for anything. I spread a blanket on the ground and we both sit down. We have a lovely romantic picnic by the light of a full moon. We feed each other and flirt. We suck crumbs and food particles from each other's fingers. We roll around on the grass, tickling each other and laughing. We share our first kiss. We love each other from the first. Station 5. Comfort. It all starts innocently enough, as these things do. I'm unloading the tumble dryer stuffed with freshly dried clothes when I find a forgotten pair of pyjamas, her pink fluffy ones covered in love hearts and rainbows. They're still hot and I can almost smell her. I end up in a sobbing heap on the floor with the pyjamas wrapped around me. The days start to blend together as I lose track of time and any sense of meaning. The house starts to stink of decaying flowers as all the wreaths and bunches of flowers that have filled the house for weeks start to rot. I notice a strange, unpleasantly sweet smell, but think nothing of it. I see dead leaves and flowers drop all over the place with detached clinical indifference. I'm eating breakfast one day, forcing spoonful after spoonful of cereal into my mouth while some inane daytime TV show plays in the background. Something falls from the ceiling and lands softly on my head. I knock it off and realise it's a sympathy card. In a fit of near hysteria, I tear them all down rip them into little pieces and have a little bonfire in the back garden. I decide it's time to try and start to pack up her stuff. I'd keep a hold of her things forever, but I know that's not the healthy choice. I start with her chest of drawers first. I'm okay until I reach the bottom one, stuffed with her old t-shirts that she sometimes wore in bed. I reach into the drawer and start to pull them out when I'm assaulted by memories. The smell and taste of her skin, the feel of her arms around me, her hot lips pressed against my skin, and the way our bodies fit perfectly together. Something, the last shred of my sanity breaks inside me, 
Hours later, my mother finds me sprawled in a sobbing, broken heap on the bedroom floor. I'm curled into a ball, rocking back and forth, wrapped in layers of Julie's sweaty t-shirts, trying to smell the last traces of her. I let her pick me up, lead me to the bathroom, and strip me. I offer no protest, as she helps me to shower and puts me to bed. Station 6. Solace. I can't sleep one night, consumed by thoughts of her. I go to bed early and just lie awake, tossing and turning, restless and unable to settle. My head's filled with a thousand thoughts of her. Every time I close my eyes, she's there. She's haunting me. I eventually throw back the covers and get out of bed. I quickly get changed into jeans, a t-shirt and a pair of trainers and go downstairs. I go out into the night, locking the front door behind me. I get into my car, back out the drive, head down the street, turn the corner and keep driving. I put the radio on, Bad Day by Daniel Pouter fills the car. I let the music fill me, numb me from inside out as I drive. I had to get away. I need some time away from the memories of her. I hate how empty the house is since she died. Everything I do, even the smallest movement, sounds incredibly loud and overbearing. Her ghost is everywhere stalking me day and night from room to room. I haven't driven far when it starts to rain, the heavy kind that stoats off the ground and soaks you to the skin if you're unlucky enough to get caught in it. The window wipers of the car work furiously, shifting and moving the rain so I can see where I'm going. I turn the radio up louder, drowning out the sound of the rain on the windows and the bonnet of the car. There doesn't seem to be another soul around. I drive for miles in the rain. Every song on the radio reminds me of her. Missing by Everything But The Girl. Stay by Shakespeare Sisters. Ghost by Ella Henderson. Hold Back The River by James Bray. How Long Will I Love You by Ellie Goulding. I cry as I drive, angrily wiping away tears with the back of my hand and ignoring the pain in my chest. I end up at an old trail high up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, far from the memories that haunt me. We spent a lot of time here, walking for miles and miles along the trail. We bought a cabin and spent weekends and weeks here, making love, going for long walks and just enjoying the quiet time. Time moved on and we fell away from this place, spending less and less time in the mountains. As I unlocked the door of the old cabin, I realised it's been more than a year since I was last here. I crashed for a couple of hours in the bed we once shared. When I wake, I set out and walk along the trail. I find the spot where we once made love in the grass and lie down. I curl myself into a ball and weep. Station 7. Remembrance 2. Five years before. I take her on a romantic break to the mountains for our first anniversary. We stay in a log cabin for a whole week, the same cabin we decide to buy a few months later. It snows the whole time. We spend a lot of time snuggled up in bed, cuddling, kissing and snuggling together for warmth. The cabin has central gas heating, but also has an old-fashioned coal fire for when the nights are really cold in the winter. We love to snuggle up together in front of a blazing coal fire with a TV playing in the background. We make love in front of the fire as darkness falls outside. Love develops during those seven days and nights. We cook every meal together, squeezed into the cabin's small kitchen. We spend more time wrapping our arms around each other's waists, kissing the back of each other's necks, teasing and feeding each other than actually making something to eat. Eating becomes something fun we can do together. 
When the snow lets up, we go for romantic strolls along the banks of the nearby lake. We hold hands and make our way beneath canopies of trees and explore caves dotted among the hills. We make love, still fully clothed, along isolated stretches of the trail. We say, I love you, for the first of many times. On our last night, we lie snuggled up in bed with the scent of our love in the air. We talk into the small hours until we're both worn out and completely exhausted. We promise each other a future. We make plans to have a baby one day. We creep downstairs and light the fire. We cuddle up on the rug in front of the fire. We whisper our love in the fading light. Station 8. Compassion. I lie in bed for months after she dies, fermenting and wasting away in the dark. I just want to be left alone with my pain. My large circle of friends is having none of it. They invade my home and my life. They fuss over me and refuse to let me wallow in self-pity. My friends try to drag the bed covers away from me. They haven't been changed in weeks and have started to smell. You refuse to give in at first and get involved in a tug of war over sweat and food stained sheets. I'm one against many and they get the covers away from me in the end. I weep and rage and scream as they strip the bed bare and put on lovely clean sheets that have no trace of her smell. They don't understand why I'm so upset, near hysterical. They half carry and half drag me to the bathroom and into the shower. They turn on the shower and freezing cold water drenches me from head to foot. I huddle in the corner, weeping and shivering after they use hot water to wash my hair and scrub my skin and face until every inch of me feels raw and aches. They change me into a fresh set of clothes, like I'm some badly behaved child. They make me do the housework. They tell me in their cruel, well-meaning way that life didn't just stop when Julie died. Life goes on and I need to as well. She wouldn't want me to wallow in grief. She loved life and would want me to go on living for her. Every word feels like a knife driven deep into my already wounded heart. They try, unsuccessfully, to force life back into my dead and withered heart. They make me go through the wardrobe and drawers and clear out all of her stuff. They help me pack everything that reminds me of her away in boxes and crates. When they finally leave me alone, I unpack every box and crate and put her stuff back exactly where it belongs. I sit on the floor in the centre of the bedroom, sobbing my eyes out, drink several bottles of wine and pass out. Station 9, Remembrance 3. Four years before. Julie's water breaks one Monday morning in the middle of November. It's the middle of winter and six inches of snow lie on the ground. The baby isn't due until February, so her contractions come as a surprise. I dial 999 and the ambulance takes forever to arrive. She's lying on the couch in the living room, propped up by pillows, taking deep breaths while rubbing her bum. She cries out in pain and tells me how far apart the contractions are. I run around like a headless chicken, feeling completely helpless. She's in labour for 19 hours before baby Ruth is born. We've been together for a little over three years and have been trying to have a baby for almost two. Neither of us could have slept with a man just a full pregnant, so artificial insemination is our only option. The percentage of success is very small. We both tried half a dozen times before she fell pregnant. I'm a wreck at the hospital as I wait for her to give birth. She's wheeled off by a team of doctors and nurses and I'm left to my own devices in the waiting room with all the other soon-to-be parents. I'm the only woman in the waiting room and feel everyone stare at me, curious. I wonder how many of them have worked it out. 
I sit as far apart as possible, waiting for the news that the latest addition to our family has arrived. Hours later, an elderly doctor with a mane of white hair summons me. He tells me the baby is on the way and Julie's asking for me. I stand up and follow the doctor up, down and along several corridors. My heart's beating so fast I'm sure everyone for miles around can hear it. The doctor shows me into a room tucked into the corner of the hospital. Julie's in the process of giving birth. She's lying on the bed, legs up on stirrups, crying out as our baby makes its slow way out of her womb. I almost faint dead away when I see the baby's blonde head between her legs. I sit in an empty chair next to her and hold her hand. She squeezes it so hard I'm sure I can feel the bones break. She screams and thrashes on the bed as baby Ruth finally slides all of the way out. I stare at the tiny, wriggling bundle on the bed between her legs. She looks so small, so tiny, frail and helpless. I'm afraid I'll hurt her just by looking at her. She opens both of her eyes wide and stares around the room. She looks right at me and my heart melts. She lets out a huge yell. Let's call her Ruth, Julie says. Ruth, that's a nice name. We look right into each other's eyes across the baby's crying head and know it's the happiest moment of both our lives. We can't stop looking at Ruth. She's all blue eyes, fingers and thumbs. The day I bring them both home is the happiest day of my life. Ruth can't sit still for more than a few minutes at a time. She crawls everywhere in the house. She's curious and into everything. I take pictures of her all the time by a fancy camcorder. Ruth becomes the centre of both our worlds. We get married when Ruth is three. She's the bridesmaid. Ruth gets sick a few months after the wedding. She's in and out of a hospital every other day. Doctors do test after test and finally discover she's got leukaemia. They tell us there's nothing we can do. We do everything we can to make her last months comfortable. She passes in the middle of the night. The grief of her tiny body almost kills us both, but we find a way to hold on. Station 10. Loss. I have a meltdown on Julie's birthday. We've always made such a big deal of one another's birthday. We usually go out for a nice meal. We go to the cinema or the theatre and sometimes even manage a couple of days away. We buy each other gifts that mean something. We always have a proper celebration of the birth of the love of our life. The fact she's gone, gone, and won't be around to help celebrate another birthday hurts more than I can handle. I drink vodka and weep until I black out in the bed I once shared with her. When I come to, several days have passed and I realise all of her things are gone from the house. Some well-meaning person or persons have ripped every trace of her from the world. The last traces of her have been completely eradicated. Her clothes are missing from the wardrobe and drawers. Dusty books that she tucked under her side of the bed are nowhere to be found. Books and CDs and other personal items belonging to her have simply vanished. I find out that her clothing... Shoes and boots have all been donated to charity. Some well-meaning busybody has taken a knife, dipped the blade in poison and driven it straight through the centre of my heart. I can feel the poison seep into every bone in my body. The unbearable feeling of loss shakes me to the core along with the realisation that I can't make her live on by refusing to let go. Station 11. Denial. For weeks after the house is cleared of her stuff, I exist in a state of near hysteria. I struggle to control my grief. I burst into tears at the drop of a hat. I sob into near hysterics for anything, everything and nothing at all. I just can't seem to shake the blues. 
I feel numb inside and out. I'm a hollow, empty shell and a wreck of a human being. Nothing I see or hear moves me. I used to laugh and cry at everything. Life, movies, and even my favourite song. None of the things I once loved can penetrate the block of ice inside my heart. Someone could have punched me in the face, smack on the side of my jaw, and I wouldn't feel a thing. Everything I see, hear, or feel hurts me. Seeing happy couples strolling along the street feels like someone has stabbed me in the heart with a blade made of flame. I hear voices in the distance that sound like her and shrivel inside. Even the ghost of a smile on my face causes unbearable pain. I rage at her ghost. I want to know why she abandoned me. Why didn't she love me enough to fight and hold on to her life? Why did she give up and let death claim her? Why can't she leave me alone? Why does she haunt me? Why does she make me feel like I'm losing my mind? I fly into a rage and smash up the house, tossing belongings and furniture willy-nilly, while struggling to breathe as tears and snot run down my face. I end up curled into a fetal position on the floor, rocking back and forth, shaking, sobbing and waiting for someone to put me out of my misery. Station 12. Grief. A year to the day, the car came out of the darkness and hit her. I'm forced awake by the sound of rain hitting the bedroom window. I stand at the window and look outside. It's barely 5am and still dark. The heavy rain stopes off the ground and soaks everything. I decide to go for a nice long walk. I used to love walking in the rain. She thought I was mad and just setting myself up to catch a bad cold. I once loved to walk in the rain. A walk in the rain seems exactly what the doctor ordered. I don't dress for the rain, wearing clothes instead more suited for a hot summer day. I act on autopilot without really letting myself think about what I'm doing. If I let myself really think, even for a minute, I'll lose the nerve. I set out in a thin t-shirt, shorts and running shoes. I walk all over town in the rain. I let the freezing rain slam into my numb, dead body. I'm trying to wake myself up. I think the cold and the rain will snap me back to reality. I'm falling apart and need something extreme to snap me out of it. By nightfall, I'm soaked to the skin and cold as a block of ice. My teeth chatter so hard they ache. I'm shuddering and shivering. My face is damp with tears and my eyes are raw, red and bloodshot. I feel nothing, not even the cold of the rain. I peel off my clothes and shoes and walk naked in the rain, begging for release. Station 13. Salvation. Hours later, I wake up in the back of an ambulance speeding through the city streets. I'm freezing cold and every bit of me burns with pain. I'm coughing and spluttering. I notice that I'm wrapped in a sodden blanket. I can't remember taking my clothes and shoes off. The paramedics tell me that some hill walkers saw me walking naked in the mountains and called Mountain Rescue. They thought I'd escaped from a psychiatric hospital and were a danger to other people. I didn't appear to be normal, lying down in the mud, holding myself, rocking and weeping while moaning Julie's name. One of the walkers wrapped a blanket around me and I sobbed gratefully in her arms. I lost consciousness on the way to the hospital. All the stress and worry of the past 12 months finally caught up with me. I'm emotionally, mentally and physically exhausted. I'm out for three days. The doctor says I have hypothermia when I finally come round. I'd have died of exposure on the mountain if the hill walkers hadn't stumbled across me. I don't think it's a good idea to tell the doctor that had been my plan all along, to die so I could be with Julie again. Some things are better left unsaid.
It took weeks for me to recover when the hospital finally sent me home. My family and friends came to visit every day. They tiptoed around me on eggshells like they were afraid to upset me in case that set me off again. I admit Julie's dead for the first time and don't even cry. I've cried it all out and don't even have a single tear inside my heart. Station 14. Acceptance. Three months after I come home from the hospital, I sell the house and move into a smaller place, a safe house with no memories of her. I get a new job working as a copy editor for a big publishing house. I start to live again. I think of Julie often, but the memories only make me feel sad and shed the occasional tear. I'm surprised to learn that losing her didn't kill me. On the second anniversary of her death, I drive back to my old town. It's a hot, sunny day. I can feel the heat on my face and eyes as I drive. Show me heaven blares away on the radio. I visit all of our old haunts. I take picture after picture of places we both loved. I buy a bunch of white lilies from a garage not far from the cemetery where she's buried. I lay the lilies on her grave and finally say goodbye. Thank you for listening to Other People's Flowers. Other People's Flowers is produced and edited by Hugo Gibson and Chris Kamalvutitam. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. If you'd like to have your work featured on the programme, please visit otherpeoplesflowers.com to see our submission guideline. Thank you.